He farms 40 acres in the small town of Selma, California, and he's just published what may be the best history of the Second World War that you will ever read. Victor Davis Hanson joining us today. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. A classicist and historian, Victor Davis Hanson is the author of many books, including the classic study of the Peloponnesian War, A War Like No Other. Dr. Hanson's newest book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Now, Victor and I continue our conversation about this magnificent new book. The Second World Wars, Victor, one of the many pleasures of this book is that you provide counterfactuals, yeah. sort of what ifs. Let's take a couple of those. Yeah. The Second World Wars, I'm quoting, could the Axis powers have incorporated their winnings and dug in? There was no reason why Hitler could not have reorganized Europe from the Atlantic to Moscow to ensure greater industrial production and conscripted armies as large as those of the Soviet Union. That Japanese-held Pacific and occupied Asia offered nearly as many natural resources and recruits as were available in North America and the British dominions, close quote. If Hitler had not attacked Russia, mm -hmm. he could have consolidated position in Europe and dominated the continent for who knows how who knows? long. Yeah. And likewise, the Japanese, yes. Mongolia, yes. Southeast Absolutely. Asia, they didn't need to attack Pearl Harbor. Why didn't they consolidate? And there were people who said just that. In the case of Germany, the, the general staff, there were people within the general staff who said, you know what, Britain, we may not be able to invade Britain, but Britain can't really do us damage. And the Americans will not intervene unless they're attacked. That was true. And the Soviet unions are su supplying us with all sorts of oil and wheat and right. precious metals. And we, we've won the war. They thought they won the war by April 1941. They won the war for Europe. Yes, they did. And they had the resources of today's European Union. But human nature being what it is, Hitler's idea was, well, wait a minute. I, I overran France in six weeks. In World War I, it took us four years. And we only got 70 miles. Based on that calculus, six weeks will be three weeks into Russia because Russia collapsed in two and a half years. France never did. I took the hardest... I cracked the hardest nut first, and now Russia, like it was in 1917 and 18, will sue for peace in six weeks, meaning half the time that it took me in World War I. He had this ratio in his head. Half Russia is going to collapse in half the time that France did. France never did. So now France collapsed, so he said, well, it's got to be three weeks, because it was six weeks. That was part of it. Part of it, he had not been defeated. In the case of Japan, it, it, it boggles the mind, because here, all of the Pacific, we keep saying, well, we, we provoked them with an oil embargo. Nuts. I mean, they had shell oil in Indonesia right in their backyard. They had all of the rice of Southeast Asia. So all they have to do is they look at the map, and they did this at the beginning, and they say, Vichy France, is, France doesn't exist. Vietnam, Cambodia, it's ours. Holland ceased to exist. It's off the map. Right. All of its colonies in Indonesia are ours. British, we can Including just... the oil operations. Exactly. And they got some oil, but not enough, because the, the Dutch had time to blow it up because of the war. But I'm getting that in Malaysia, rubber. All they had to do was do two things. Do not touch the Philippines and do not touch Pearl Harbor. And they would have overran all the British, Dutch, and French, and they would have had all a necessary population base 
and resources they needed. They had one problem, and that is their supreme leadership, as we discussed, lived in a world of fantasy. They thought they were invulnerable, and they had all this idea of, in Italy of Raza, the Franco idea that Raza means that we're racially superior, or the Volk, or the Amato in, in Japan, whereas the Allies didn't quite have that idea, and they were more realistic. And then, Victor, were these leaders, Mussolini, Hitler, Tojo, and the, well, I guess Tojo wasn't yeah. a supreme leader in the same way. He had yeah. the war cabinet. Yeah. It was more of a shared responsibility. Here they sit atop. Italy is a little more backward, but still, it was a modern country. Certainly, Hitler and Tojo and the war cabinet in Japan sit atop what were, by the standards of the day, massive, industrial, complicated states, and, oper and they control them. And yet they overreached. They overreached. Were they nuts or were they evil? How did, what is well, their motive? They were both, and they had convinced themselves that the initial victories, in the case of Japan since 37, but the initial victories from 39, especially to 41, were such that they grew contemptuous of the resistance. And they said, if the great French army collapsed, if the United States will watch London burn and do nothing, if uh, the Chinese, we have half of China now. If the British can't even uh, bolster Singapore, if the Americans at Pearl Harbor only have three carriers, even though we had the second largest fleet in the world, they logically developed a contempt. And the thing about deterrence is it doesn't really matter that the British fleet is the largest in the world and ours is the second largest, or that we have a capability within three years to build a bigger fleet than all the fleets in the world combined if you don't display that deterrence. And they thought, well, deterrence isn't really material, it's spirit. And we have Elan, and we've got a new paradigm where modernist, modern fascism marshals the state, it's technologically superior, and we didn't disabuse them of that. It's sort of like North Korea today telling us how powerful they are when they have no clue of what they're getting into with the United States, because we're, you know, we're sophisticated, humane people, and we don't want to display to North Korea what could happen. And that's very dangerous because deterrence is also perceptions as well as actual strength. Mm. One more counterfactual, fascinating counterfactual. Again, I'm quoting from the Second World Wars. Quote, American commanders, this takes a little bit to set up, but it's I think it's fascinating. American commanders were indoctrinated in two tactical traditions. And you trace them both to the Civil War. One was made famous by Ulysses S. Grant, emphasizing finding the enemy, then controlling and destroying him through overwhelming firepower. There was also a complementary tradition of mobility, envelopment, and stripping an enemy's ability to make war by destroying his infrastructure and morale, and that tradition is made famous by Sherman yes. and his march to the sea. Okay, had the U.S. Army utilized its singular, I'm quoting you again, utilized its singular motorized mobility and tactical air power in the manner that Patton's Third Army had used it to cover its flanks, and then adopted a Shermanesque attitude toward bypassing more resistance and conducting encirclements, the war, in theory, might well have ended before 1945. Patton is all about mobility, and he drives to the south and could have gone through, could easily have taken Prague, could have gone up to yeah. Berlin, and Eisenhower says no. We advance on a front yeah. steadily grinding, grinding, grinding. And it's tragic because... Well, so, so how would you... Well, George Patton, he had Trumpian characteristics. He was 
a blunderbuss and he said things he shouldn't have said and people confused that lack of discipline with a lack of talent. He was, an, he was an authentic military genius, but we put him on ice, remember, from July of 43 to 44, where after the slapping incidents, we didn't have those talents in the planning of Normandy. But once we actually did do Normandy and we gave him Third Army, he didn't advance according to the plan. He was the furthest from Germany, and yet he, he advanced the fastest, and he, people said, well, there's gaps in, in, in our, our front. He's going too fast, and he was, begging them to see that air power had changed that. With P-47s and P-38s, he had an ability to protect his flanks. And the Sherman tank he had, and the M-1, he had really uh, a great deal of confidence in their durability, their easy easy use, and people were saying, we're gonna see a tiger one day, and he's, you know, there's only 600 tigers, who cares about a tiger, we have air power. So he was way ahead of his time, and we, we, we tend to do that in the United States if a person is, not considered sober and judicious, we, we, we equate that with, with a recklessness or a lack of discipline with incompetence. He was absolutely competent, he was brilliant, he spoke French, he read German, mm -hmm. he was an intellectual, and that was something. But in the Pacific, we had people like Chester Nimitz, Spruance, Halsey, that did the same thing as Sherman and Patton. Were trying, they skipped islands, they skipped Rabaul, they skipped, uh, over to Iwo Jima, into Okinawa, Tarwa, and uh, they cut they cut the in, the entire Japanese Empire off from its supplies without having to invade each one of these. MacArthur did to a lesser extent. Well, he probably should have bypassed the Philippines, but there was that tradition that you don't want to get head to head with a fanatical enemy like uh, Grant did in the summer of 1864, whereas Sherman went around the flank in Atlanta, then the March of the Sea, and into the Carolinas. So there's great argument in the U.S. military about hitting them head-on versus uh, the Sherman-esque, Patton-esque, Nimitz approach where we have so much more capability, logistical and industrial, and we have more mobility, we have air power, sea power, we can cut them off without having to fight them because they're 19th century in their way they fight right. in the sense that they're very ferocious and they're extremely good soldiers. And we all, you mentioned Patton who could have swept around down to the south. Churchill, we have cables. Churchill begged Eisenhower and then went over his head and went straight to FDR, begged them to let Montgomery go across the north yeah. and get to yeah. Berlin. It and it, part of cal Churchill's calculation, as I recall, was he wanted to get to Berlin before the Red Army yes, did. Yes, he did. It was one of the tragedies of the Normandy uh, placement of forces that of the, the Allied armies, the, the quick shot into the Ruhr Valley, once you landed in, Norm in the north beaches at Normandy, it was only 500 miles to get straight, less than that even, to go right through the Netherlands into the Ruhr, and you had the sober, judicious, professional, I don't want to say plotter because Montgomery was a very good organizer, but he wasn't a uh, cutter. He didn't he wasn't slash, passionate. not a slasher. And then you had the person who had that ability and you put him uh, to the south, not, you know, he was still northern central France, but he had the longest eight, nine hundred miles, and that wasn't part of the plan. He was supposed to secure, the, in the other direction, the Atlantic port. So had he been to the north, he would have got into the Ruhr very quickly, I think. Mm. One, one more on this counterfactual. Had Roosevelt been as suspicious of Stalin's murderous gulag and expansionary plans as he was sometimes of Churchill's effort to preserve Britain's colonial possessions, the United States might have been better prepared for the Cold War. What might Roosevelt have done? Well, Roosevelt basically said to Stalin, uh, or I shouldn't say Roosevelt, but his envoys said, 
we don't approve of communism, but we understand where you're coming from, that the imperial colonial world is over with, and that we're going to support you full, full heart. Churchill said, it's not over with. We can decolonize if we have to, but we have a, a humanizing mission abroad, and people under British colonies are much different than the Soviet people under Soviet uh, communism, and that, that didn't appeal to us. So when we were giving aid, and the British were giving aid, the British were thinking- To the Soviets. Uh, yes, they were thinking, what does this do when the German army disappeared? And the Americans, in typical American fashion, were sort of, let's be puritanical, how can you even think of that? The Soviets are our allies, we're fighting against this horrible fa fascism and Nazism. We don't want to think of the post-war ramification. Where Churchill was always saying, do you really, he was looking at 500 years of history and right. saying when you destroy Germany, then you empower Russia. Germany is the continental buffer between Western Europe and Russia, no matter what the political system is. And Americans thought, you know, that's an old game. We don't, we're not right. gonna listen to your, yeah, we're a new people, we're, we're democratic, this is the future of the United Nations, and we're all gonna live in peace, and we're gonna, the Soviets and the British and us will police the world, and we're gonna run this on principles of equality and fairness, and Stalin, I mean, that, to him that was ludicrous. All right. The moral questions. The Allies sought not merely to end the war on useful terms, but to demand that the Axis powers submit to unconditional surrender, a which you call, quote, a historically rare objective yes. of most wars, close quote. So even today, you will hear it argued a lot yeah. that if only we had not called for unconditional surrender, yeah we could have reached terms with the Japanese much earlier. There were cables between, I, I think the, this has been substantially beat, but there are cables we picked up that the Japanese were looking for terms of surrender, that Hitler may be a different case, but even with Hitler, you could have come to some arrangement earlier. Yeah. And that lives were lost needlessly because Roosevelt and Churchill, Stalin as well, but Roosevelt and Churchill was these two deeply humane men who decided in Casablanca, as you say, Stalin wasn't at Casablanca, they decided to insist upon terms of unconditional surrender. Yeah, and we have to, as historians, we have to look at what the world that they looked at, not as we look at post facto, and they were looking at the Versailles Treaty, and they said that combined the worst of both traits in human nature. We were punitive in the sense of rhetorically we blamed Germany, but we did not divide Germany, we did not occupy it, we did not invade with occupation troops. And we created the myth that they had been sold out by Jews or socialists while they were in someone else's territory. So this time around, we're not gonna do that. Second thing is they understood that every time Germany had made a peace agreement, whether it was the Franco-Prussian War or the September program, uh, the design in World War I in September, to, they thought they were gonna take France, or the Brest-Litovitz tr Treaty that knocked out Russia in World War I, or what they were envisioning after uh, World War II when they won, they were pretty barbaric. And so they said, you cannot deal with these fascist countries and you can't have an armistice like we did with World War I. That was a, a green light to World War II. So this time around, we're going to defeat, we're gonna humiliate, we're gonna occupy, and we're gonna rebuild these countries into consensual societies. So for all the effort that was involved, and we still have troops in all three countries. All these years later. By giving women the right to vote, to take one example in Japan, or land redistribution 
in Japan, we created peaceful, humane societies. I don't think that would have been possible with an armistice. But today, I mean, for all our criticisms of Japan and Germany and Italy, they are three of the most humane uh, countries in the world and they're strong U.S. allies. And that was a direct result of the vision of Roosevelt and Churchill. But it, it came at a cost. And had we had an armistice, we probably would have been able to cut a deal with Hitler and Tojo in 1943 or 4. Mm -hmm. But we would have been at war with them in a cold peace in the 50s. Forever. I think it would have been like the first, second, third Punic War. Or what we see in the Middle East with the 48, 56, 67, 73, 2006 war. It's a bellum interruptum. And they didn't want that. And they were willing to pay the extra. And they had societies that had been surprise attacked and generations of American and British and Soviet citizens that were willing to pay that price. Mm. Aerial bombing. You note that Britain and the United States dropped 30 times as much tonnage on Germany as Germany dropped on Britain. Um, and with regard to Japan, quote, the March 9 to 10, 1945 napalm firebombing of Tokyo remains the most destructive single 24-hour period in military history. Yeah. Close quote. And then, of course, we have the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the argument is that the Allies violated one of the most fundamental tenets mm -hmm. of just war theory by targeting civilians. Yes. Never, ever, ever is it permissible to target non-combatants. That is immoral in and of itself. To which Victor Davis Hanson answers? Well, they had a point. Curtis LeMay said that if we'd lost the war, he was the architect of the fire raids. He would be tried and convicted as a war criminal by the victorious Japanese. But everything has a utilitarian foundation to the argument. So we had developed the B-17 and the B-24 on a false premise. The fortress, the B-17 flying fortress, could fly in formation. It could knock down fighters. It could go 1,200 miles, 1,000 miles into enemy territory. It could devastate. We found out by 1943 that that was not true. The Norden bomb site was not that accurate. It was too cloudy over Germany. The best pilots and planes in the world were Focke-Wulf 190s. We didn't have sufficient, and we were butchered. 40,000 people killed. The British shot out of the sky. Shot out of the sky. The great tragedy of, of the World War II, from our point of view. The British learned that they weren't going to do that. They called it area bombing, and they used more napalm. They didn't have napalm. We developed napalm, but they did have incendiary. And they discovered after losing forty thousand, even with great planes like the Lancaster, that they could not quite knock out Germany. So by 1944, this effort was in crisis. They had, done, they had some dividends. They'd made Germany bring back 10,000 88-millimeter platforms from Russia that were anti-tank guns to use as flat guns. But nevertheless, they were uh, in a stasis. They couldn't really know what to do. And then they hit upon the idea, we're going to get fighter escorts, and we're going to area bomb transportation hubs, fuel depots. Going low. Going lower. And then same thing in Japan. Curtis LeMay said the B-29 is a $2 billion program, bigger than the Manhattan Project. It has got no results. It's too high. It's at 30,000 feet. There's a jet stream. It misses the target. I want to take them low at 5,000 feet and use the jet stream. They'll come in at 400 miles an hour almost. They'll drop napalm. They don't have to be accurate. The same idea that had worked in Europe. And the idea was not quite that you're bombing civilians only, but you can't hit a target. You don't have the expertise. And 
the pre-war propaganda that you could drop a bomb into a pipe is completely Ridiculous. fabricated. So what we're going to do is we're going to burn everything uh, to burn out the rail yard or to burn out the coal to, to oil plant or to burn out uh, the zero factory. And it was true, but they took a level of collateral damage that was astonishing. Now, they would say to us, give us the most optimistic number of Italian, I shouldn't say that word, it's an amoral term, but give us the most, uh, uh, your greatest estimate of civilians that were killed in Japan, Germany, and Italy, and it would be somewhere between one million and one and a half million. Right. And they would say, we were fighting a people that by 1945 were killing 20,000 people in Asia, the Japanese. 20,000 people per day. To today in places like, and the war itself, 27,000 people were killed every day of this six-year war. Six million were killed in Auschwitz. And then they would say as Bomber Harris, they the, reaped the British the, general. Yes, the British Air, Bomber Air Harris said they reaped the wind and they're gonna sow the whirlwind, quoting biblical scripture. And his point was, they started the war, they surprise attacked us, they set up death camps, they're killing prisoners. The SS has an atrocious record in the Soviet Union. It's a little rich for them to say that we have to pinpoint targets when we know that we don't have that ability. So what are you going to do when, you're, when the Soviet Union is losing 10,000 men a day and they say, where's the, where's the second front? And, and we say, well, we're North Africa, maybe Italy. So that's not enough. How are you gonna stop 100 divisions coming and reinforcing? And we said, we'll start bombing. And that, the idea was we're gonna open a second front through bombing. Right. And, uh, second front in the air. When you talk to people today, uh, if you talk to Chinese citizens, diplomats, consuls, or you talk to people in Indonesia or Southeast Asia, I, and I have, I don't think I've ever, and I've read a lot of the literature, I don't think you ever see an argument that the United States was cruel and inhumane for bombing Japan. It's usually the other way around. I wish they had bombed earlier. Mm -hmm. For myself, and you and all Americans, it's something that I will just end with this comment that the fire raids were really much more destructive than the atomic bombs. We've got to remember that the war ended May 8th, 9th in Europe. There was a largest bombing fleet in the world was in Europe. So we had about 10,000 idle B-17, B-24, and British Lancaster was a superb plane plus two-engine middle bombers, B-25s and 26. We had taken Okinawa and declared secure on July 2nd. So Curtis LeMay was building you know, 5,000-foot runways. We had 2,000 B-29s on order that were arriving to supplement the 2,000 from the Marianas. In LeMay's mind, I have a 10,000-plane, four-engine bombers at not three missions a week from the Marianas, 1,600 miles away. Right. Two a day from Okinawa. My only problem is enough napalm. So he would have burned down all of Japan. Right. So the actual atomic bombs saved not so much an invasion, which LeMay said we wouldn't have done. We would have, we would have created a firestorm that I think we would be regretting today. So the atomic bombs stopped that. And we, we killed a lot of Japanese, 500,000, but we didn't invade the country. And uh, there were about seven million Japanese soldiers. There were 7,000 kamikaze planes, and we avoided that through air power. And uh, there, there is an irony that Japan was not as willing in the post-year wars to come to terms with its 
criminal behavior in World War II, as was Germany and Italy, right. simply because we did not invade and their territory was not fought over. It was reduced by air power, and then the occupation was not a fought over or contested occupation. Mm. And so they had a little bit more leeway under the MacArthur proconsulship than did Germany and Italy. Victor, last questions here. You grew up, as you write in the book, you grew up in your ranch, the family ranch in Selma, in the Central Valley of California, hearing firsthand accounts of the Second World War from your father and uncles. First of all, tell us, why are you named Hanson? Well, my uh, father's first cousin, his mother died in childbirth, and his father was blinded in a farming accident. So he was, grew up with my father, and they were inseparable. And they went to University of Pacific under Alonzo Stagg and played as ends on the football team. They joined the Marine Corps. Family lore gets hazy here. Somebody hit a Marine officer. They were big Swedes. And one of them had to take the blame. And the military said, either you're going to get kicked out of the Marine Corps, or you're going to, we're going to fix you, Hanson. We're going to send you to this new B-29 program where everybody gets killed. We heard it's just the worst thing in the world in Nebraska. So they kind of decided that I think my father was the one they hit the person. So my Victor uh, went on the 6th Marine Division and fought. Victor's your uncle. Yes, and he fought the atrocious battle in Okinawa when he was killed on the last day of Sugarloaf Hill. And when I wrote a book once, Ripples of Battle, uh, I, I was wondering what happened. And one of the people who in his 90s read the book and said, I have his ring. And he said, really? uh, when he was killed on the last day, he was a big Swede and we couldn't bring him down. His hand swelled, so we cut off the ring. And, and when I got back, I called your grandfather and, and broken Swedish. She said, I don't want to talk about it, so it's on my mantle. So he sent it to me. Oh, my goodness. And then my father, and the irony is that he went to the B-29 uh, program, went over to Tinian, and he flew 40 missions as a central fire control. Of the 16 planes in a squadron, I think all but two were shot down or engine failure crashed, replacement crews. And so the person who was supposed to die lived, and the person who had a better chance of living died. So your dad named you Victor. And he, and he said, you know, I remember him saying to me, it's going to be very hard. You've got a real burden because he was an all-star athlete, and he was killed. I don't know if you can live up to it, but you've got to try. So, right. so Victor, you, you heard these stories from participants. I, my father was in the war as well, so I have some first-hand accounts. You have kids, now you're a grandfather. How do you convey, how do you make, I don't know how to, how to put the question other than to, to put it this way, how do you make them believe, how do you make them understand that this happened? Yeah, that's why I tried to write the book because I, I asked myself that same day, I, I, when I go to downtown Palo Alto, or I go to New York, or I'm on my farm and I see the security, the prosperity, everything we have. And I look at the world abroad and I see, you know, democratic government all over Europe and Asia and all of these miracles going on. I say to myself, none of this would, have been ha would happen if it wasn't for these people in the United States and their counterparts in Britain, Australia, Canada, and the Soviet Union as well. And I think, wow, they were willing to give up everything for some idea. And I asked myself in, in bouts of melancholy, was it worth it? If they came back and they looked at our culture today, was this what it was all for? Is this what dying in Okinawa was for when you're 22? Or getting blown up in a B-29 when you're 18? I hope it was. So I think we have to take a deep breath
and stop looking at history as melodrama where we go back and look at the past and use the value system of the presence to pick winners and losers. History's tragedy and we should really instead say given the material constraints put upon them and given what they knew at the time, how they did what they did in World War II is a miracle and we are indebted every day of our lives to them. And we need to start, I think, honoring people of the past who did things I'm afraid to say I'm not sure I could do and my generation could do. Uh, when I was 21 years old, I was in graduate school studying Greek. When my father was 21, he had ear infections, sinus infections, and he was in a B-29 high above Japan, uh, and emergency landed in, in Iwo Jima and almost everybody was killed. And he got the, the highest medal of the, the Air Force, it's English uh, Air Medal for taking a, in, 500 pound napalm bomb with his hands that was locked in the bomb bay and throwing it out. And I can't think of anything I've done in my entire life like that. I think that's true of our whole generation. In Vietnam, people were very courageous as well in Korea, but I think this generation owes a lot to the generations that came. And this is why I get so depressed with these contemporary controversies where people don't want to do this or they don't think they have to honor the flag. They don't understand that somebody just handed them a country and what they, they think, wow, there's, it's this ism or this ology and it's, it's not good because it's not perfect and they don't understand what they started with. The alternative, that generation said we just have to be better than the alternative. The alternative was Japanese Holocaust, German Holocaust and what the Italians did in Africa, it was a Holocaust and yet we didn't do that. And so we say, well, we weren't perfect, therefore we weren't good. No, we were very good what we did in World War II, and we need to remember it. Victor Davis Hanson, author of The Second World Wars, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Peter Robinson for Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution. Thank you.